what we've experienced over the last decade since the 2008-2009 recession is there's a general consensus, and I've observed it among my consumer-measured sample, my wife. That's... <laughs> Once more unto the breach, dear friends. I'll close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another greatly exciting, fundamentally life-changing second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. Was I a little over the top? You're not a little over the top. You were a lot over the top. Well, I mean, you're, you're talking about exciting episodes where two economists who happen to be bald and bearded are uh, sitting from their homes talking to each other about the intricacies of the macro and microeconomic spectrum. And I'm sure all the boys and girls are gleefully taking notes. Yeah, of course. I actually do find what we talk about interesting or we wouldn't be talking about it. But I, I've just met a lot of people that when I talk to them about this stuff, they just get this blank look on their face and their feet start to slowly back away as their face is saying, I'm not leaving, but they're leaving. This is the personal wealth coach. This is Jake McClure. Jeff McClure is here with me. He's my dad, by the way, folks. And I have the utmost in respect for him. We've been working together for 30 years now, 30 years working with a family member with both of us. All of us still have our limbs attached. There's We're both alive too. That's really impressive. Still alive. We have not maimed or mangled each other in any way. So that's, that's kind of fun. Um, this is the personal wealth coach. Uh, now it's time for our disclosures. Maybe the most exciting Part of every episode is where we talk about the governmental authority that we fall under and the way we gather our information and whether or not we pay for stuff. Okay, here we go. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of a radio program and a podcast. It is also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. Now, what is that? mean. It doesn't mean that the SEC has given us any kind of a thumbs up, thumbs down. They don't approve anything. That's not their role. There are regulators. That means if you hear us say something that's dangerous to the public, they're the people to talk to. Also, that the SEC registered investment advisory firm, the personal wealth coach, generally offers, generally, it always offers fiduciary investment advice. But that's not what we're doing on this program. We can't offer fiduciary investment advice because fiduciary means that we've got to know you really, really well. And we need to put your interests not just ahead of our own, but have your sole interests in mind. That's a little different than the typical investment situation. We can't do that on the radio because we don't know you all. And even if we did know you all, this isn't group therapy. If we're giving one of you advice, it's probably not the right advice for other people. It's not group therapy? Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe it, maybe it showed up at the wrong radio program. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jake. Hi, Jake. Um, so, uh, what are we doing if we're not offering investment advice on the air? We're offering education. We're going to help you by providing information that will make your decision making hopefully easier and maybe even give you some decision tree concepts of how to think about making financial decisions. All right, that was a really long-winded disclosure. You get the next long-winded disclosure. Here you go. Yeah, this next one's important. The information we present on this radio program is educational, and it has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable and accurate. However, we make no guarantee or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Uh, nor do we warranty or guarantee that we can say the word completeness on a regular basis. You got that. But you can't say warranty and guarantee on a regular basis, just not, not related to anything. I can say deem, warranty, and guarantee very, consistent, very consistently. But it's not but, complete without completeness in it. Right. We need to give them a contact us. If you want to ask us some questions that we will address on the air, and this is... Saturday morning, the 13th of March, 2021. 
You're certainly welcome to give us an email, drop us an email, send us an email, whatever you do with you. You don't drop emails, do you? Uh, you, I, I think you click emails or send. So most people have a send on their, yeah. Okay. Anyway, it's either Jake at tpwc.com or Jeff at tpwc.com or both. And we will endeavor, that's my word for the day, to address your question, thought, or comment on the air. Speaking okay. of the economy, which we kind of brushed around, we're kind of stuck. What are we What are we stuck on? Well, the economy is runs on people spending money, and we were going to talk about this. What is it like to have a consumer-based economy? Consumer-based economy means that most of what we make or sell in the United States is used by people in the United States. They buy it, they use it, and it's gone, which is good. Now, there's an alternative to that, and that's an export-based economy. China has an export-based economy. Germany has an export-based economy, um, where a lot of the stuff that's made in the country is sold to other countries who then return money. The problem with an export-based economy is that it is dependent upon your customers. If your customers shut down, you shut down too, and you get hurt for certain. We have a tremendous advantage over the rest of the world, and it's showing up economically. If you look at the economic figures, Europe, for example, is export-based, and they are hurting. Uh, China is not doing so well either compared with the United States right now because they're export-based. Now, as long as we keep buying stuff from China, China will do reasonably well. But the point is the Europeans are not buying stuff from China because the European economy is sagging. So the Chinese get hurt and there's nothing they can do about it. There's nothing they can do about what goes on in Europe. In the United States, because we're a consumer-based economy, we just passed a stimulus bill and the president signed it. We had two stimulus bills before that the previous president signed. We can put the spurs to our economy give people more money to spend, let them spend the more money, and it jacks the economy up and it keeps the recessions from being so bad. So last hour I said that the consumer-based economy has a bad name because it sounds bad. I mean, yeah, who wants to be a consumer-based? Who wants just, that's just consuming stuff? I that, do. There's a bit of a misnomer there. I want to be a consumer. Yeah, me too. Um, it's what we do when we eat. If you're not consuming, then you're probably dead by now. The other part of that is that consumption doesn't mean all the time that you've just used it all up. Consumption means that you are the end purchaser. Do you consume a dryer or a washing machine? Yes, yes you do, but you do it over a long period of time. So this is why we call it a durable good, because you consume it over a long period of time. A mortgage is another example of that. The word mortgage is mort and gauge. Mort is Latin for death. Gauge is a measurement. So it's in essence the life expectancy of the consumption of the house. This is why banks like to use 30 years. If you consider this, if you did absolutely no roof work, wall work, plumbing work, electrical work, no painting, nothing else over a 30-year period, what would be left of the house? The answer is just the ground underneath it. It may actually cost money to remove the rubble on top. A mortgage is a great word. It's a, it's a consuming time period where you say, I'm consuming this over a period of time. You do it with your cars. Cars that you've used generally don't run as well as cars that are new. You have consumed some of their ability in doing what you do. As a consumer-based economy, it's not like export-based economies are not consumers. They have some consumption. They're selling to other consumers somewhere else. And if the United States has a recession, it tends to lead to a recession in Europe. We talk about that in the past. Europe gets into a recession. When the United States sneezes, Europe gets the flu. Same with China. When the United States stops buying from China, China gets really ill. They're working hard toward going to a consumer-based system themselves, but they're not there yet. Europe doesn't really have the capability of going consumer-based if you're talking about Germany. They don't have enough consumers for all the things that they make. And that's why they're not a consumer-based economy. They're, they have to sell to the outside world. Japan's another example of that. And the long term is as long as you're dependent on everybody else for your own well-being, then you better be taking care of everybody else to make sure that they're not hurt too badly when things go bad. Uh, so consumer-based economies, while they have a bad name, it's really, it's kind of the concept of energy independence. It's independence 
from our customers because we are our customers. If there's an economic downturn in the United States, it definitely impacts our manufacturing. It de definitely impacts all the things that create the items that are being consumed. But if we prop up our own system, we prop up all parts of the system. If the Germans or the Chinese did a big stimulus, it would have a much smaller impact on their economy because they're not consumer based. They're not the they're not the ones that are buying the goods from their own manufacturers. Uh, if if you give a big incentive, a big stimulus package to China, it will not cause them all to go out and buy computer chips. They're making computer chips to sell to other manufacturers elsewhere in the world, but it's not something that your on the street consumer in China is going to say, "I'm going to go buy a computer chip today." Not unless they're doing something with it that they're planning on selling to someone outside the country. You follow what I'm saying there? So a consu consumer-based economy is a much stronger foundation for any uh, economic growth if you're not dependent on the outside world. And I think that, that piece is maybe the most misunderstood of the general economic terms that we use on a regular basis. So hopefully... Uh, those of you that didn't hear it on this episode will be able to flip back and we'll say, hey, we have that. Just go back and listen to the podcast on uh, what consumer is and, and forget about it. Um, but you had some things you wanted to talk about this hour as well. Well, it really dovetailed into what you're talking about. The fact is we have to have a lot of money in the economy for people to spend money in order to create jobs and maintain the jobs. If you decide to cut back on spending, then people get laid off, which means they have less money to spend, which means they cut back further on spending, and that's how we get into depressions and severe recessions. We're running an experiment in the United States economy right now. There's a consensus among economists that the reason the 2007-8 recession lasted so long and took so long for everything to recover was we didn't spend enough money. We didn't put enough of money into the economy, and it goes back to post Great Depression of 1929, 1930s. We came out of that not with all the things we tried to do. We get kept getting stuck in a, in a depression. We stayed stuck in a depression until we spent tremendous amounts of money for World War II and hired basically everybody who was able-bodied to go fight in World War II or work in a factory. And we did that by running huge deficits. And we, got, we came out of it and we had the post-World War II boom. The theory that's behind the American was it the American Recovery Act that just passed was that if we pump enough money into the economy, we can prevent people from getting in long-term unemployment. We can support those who are unemployed, and we will have a much faster, much better recovery, and interestingly enough, generate more tax revenue on the other end. It's kind of an interesting reversal because it was pretty much, and it, there's a lot of parallels here. That's pretty much the theory that occurred during the Reagan administration. Borrow a lot of money, pump it into various wherever, and it will cause the economy to rise and it will cause the tax revenues to ultimately rise and will get us out of debt. And by the way, interestingly enough, people don't pay a lot of attention to this. In the 1980s, under the Reagan administration, under the philosophy of the Reagan the Republicans at the time, that's what we did. We borrowed a lot of money, we spent a lot of money, we built up defense, we paid a lot of people. And it and, wound up and, abolishing and, the Soviet Union in the process. We abolished the Soviet Union in the process. And at the tail end of that, as we went into the tail end of the 1990s, we wound up with a surplus and we could have paid down our debt. Now, the idea of uh, that we didn't do that, there's a lot of questions about whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. But the point is, Reagan's philosophy, is it's credited to Reagan, although it was he, I'm sure he didn't think of it himself. A lot of people under him thought of it. Arthur Laffer was a key proponent of this. It worked. Now, we're trying this again right now, and there's a Democrat trying it, which I think is one of those interesting reversals. Uh, the first two stimulus bills were passed by Republicans, with the Republican president signing it, and they were good. But now we've got a third one. It's, it's, it's put in by a Democrat, so, the Demo so it must be bad, according to the Republicans. That's just that. This is the way it works. If the Republicans do something, the Democrats will say it's bad. If the Democrats do something, the Republicans... If the Republicans do something, the Democrats will say it's bad. If the Democrats do something, the Republicans will say it's bad. That's just the way it works. But the theory is that should kick us into gear, and we'll be able to see fairly quickly. For example, 
uh, we're already beginning to see some evidence of this. The uh, Moody's economics, which has done a, probably the most effective job of forecasting what happens next in the economy, in my opinion, is now forecasting that the annualized, the first quarter GDP growth in the United States will be 8.1%. That will be something like a record. And the consensus of, uh, of economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal are now saying we're going to be up near 6% for the entire year which will be the fastest economic growth we've seen since 1983 when Reagan was president, as we came out of that recession. And by the way, where the same philosophy was employed. It'll be really interesting to see how this works. It's an experiment. Now, now let me, let me kind of flip another piece in here, another piece to the puzzle, and it's a big piece. Um, the, the Economist has basically on this subject said this is their this is it says the weekend charts but it's the cons- coming consumer boom uh, it has some measurements of current account balances at households what does that mean well your debt level your income level how much money you have versus how much money you owe and something interesting happened. We've got about uh, a little over 6% in what is considered excess savings compared to what we had pre-pandemic at the household level. And the current account balance, which means if you throw short-term debt into the mix, it's considerably considerably higher than that when you take the debt out because a lot of people paid off credit card debt and built up their savings in the middle of this pandemic. That being said, China's recovered really, really quickly. Their online retail sales have jumped up. Our balance of trade with China is, is high. It is, it's worse by 50% from what it was pre-pandemic because as our economy is recovering, we're importing more. And our manufacturing isn't quite up to snuff to be exporting more because the rest of the world really isn't buying right now. And this is that's an important piece of what we were just talking about in the consumer-based economy is that Germany's not buying a whole lot of stuff from the United States right now. China generally doesn't buy a lot of stuff from the United States. Canada and Mexico are buying a lot, but it's not making up for the, the normal exports that we do to Europe and to big chunks of Asia. So... Uh, this is the piece that I wanted to add to that puzzle is vaccines administered. There's only one country on the planet that's above where the United States is in our vaccine administration right now. And as bad as it is in the United States, and I hear all kinds of issues because people, people in the United, we're used to getting what we need when we need it. Just give it to us. If you were here during the great freeze in Texas and, whoa, there's no food on the shelves or right at the beginning of the pandemic when nobody could get toilet paper, we had these moments of, are we a third world nation or what's going on? We're still better off than the rest of the world. When it comes to vaccines administered, we are just below Britain and Britain has a population that is much less than 10% of ours. We and so uh, as far as per person, we're behind them. As far as total numbers, nobody's even close to us. So when we're talking about the danger from China, this is something to be very, very clear about. The pandemic's not over just because we get vaccinated. There, are more, there are mutations that occur. There's new strains to this stuff. And as we are now the place that is the focus of vaccination, we've got the most vaccinated people, we're the, we've got the most research on vaccines, that's going to be amazingly good for us. China's having trouble, I mean, they're sending vaccines to the rest of the world because they don't have much in the way of coronavirus in China. I'm going to tell you that's a temporary thing. As long as there's trade, diseases travel from one place to another and as much as we pointed at China's, you know, Goldilocks approach to getting out of pandemic, it was draconian. And I like the word draconian here because it means dragon and Chinese are really fond of dragons. They had a draconian approach. They just shut everything down. And by shut down, there's nothing like that kind of shutdown that we experienced here. The government did say, yes, don't go to work. And they maybe even gave you uh, traffic citations or citations for being out in public. In China, you went to prison. And like 
big like real prison like people are still in prison prison for violating the curfew that was set during their their draconian shutdown they will have to go back to that again if there's another outbreak where we're building up our vaccine we're getting to the herd immunity point which means that we may have some negative impact from china's economy not doing not having a steady recovery in the future there's only so much they can cut off transmission rates by shutting down borders or by shutting down provinces. At some point, they have to get vaccinated, and they're way behind us on that. So there's, there's lots of little pieces to what we've talked about the last several, several conversations that come together to say, we're seeing a really big boom in the future. Uh, you're looking at Moody's. I'm looking at The Economist, and we're coming up with the same information across what we're reading and anecdotally. And I jumped into the middle of your conversation to add to it, and I feel like I have run off with it. So I'm going to hand it back to you. I think you're doing a good job running off with it. We have the important thing to recognize is that although things may be a little tough for at the moment and people are, there's a little bit of skittishness in the market. One of the things that's driving the stock market right now, and particularly driving the value side of the stock market, is the consensus, and I think it's a good consensus, that we're going to have the most amazing economic growth in memory for most of us this year. And we're going to, it's going to carry over into 2022. We've talked about the recession. We've talked about the fact that there's great threats, and that's very popular among economists. That's why it's called the dismal science, the threats to the economy. But everything is shaping up to be very, very, very positive. And by the way, we talked about inflation. There's very little evidence we're going to have any significant inflation. Inflation should, the consensus by the Wall Street Journal survey, is the, the economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal, is that inflation will run about 2.48% this year, which is a little higher than we've had it, but it's certainly within the range that the Federal Reserve has indicated they said is acceptable. In other words, since we've had such low inflation for so long, they're willing to allow inflation to run up above 2% for a while. Why is that important? If the American people perceive that prices are going up for the things they buy, I want to think think about this for just a minute. If you're going to buy something, let's say your washing machine is starting to squeak and make noises, and you perceive that the prices of washing machines will be higher in the future than they are today, you will have a tendency to go out and buy it more readily now which is a kick in the rear end to the economy. It spurs the economy to do better things. If you're thinking about buying something and you think prices are lower now than they will be in the future, you will have a tendency to go out and buy it. And that's because there's a lot of money in the economy buying things. What we've experienced over the last decade since the 2008-2009 recession is there's a general consensus, and I've observed it among my consumer uh, measured sample, my wife, (laughs) <laughs> that's wait until it goes on sale because they'll eventually put it on sale because prices will go down in the future. And this causes the economy to run much slower than it otherwise would run. Again, it's an it's an economic experiment, and it's an economic experiment we're running right now to see if this really works. Yes, I will be the first to admit that we're borrowing money. We borrowed money as a percentage of the GDP equivalent to what we did in World War II. The question is, can we afford to do so? And the apparent answer so far has been yes. Uh, the reason I say the apparent answer so far has been yes is when we go out to auction these securities, which are still, uh, which are still net paying less than inflation, so they have a net negative interest rate on them. There are multiples of, let's say, the for every billion dollars that the government wants to borrow, there are about eight to ten to sometimes twelve billion dollars of worth of offers to loan that money. That means that there's still plenty of market for U.S. securities out there, U.S. Treasury securities out there. Now, is there could we reach a point eventually where we don't have that market? Yes, it could happen. But hopefully, and I, I say hopefully in a, with tongue-in-cheek and with abated breath, we will raise taxes once the economy gets cranked up, not before. That's an important thing to recognize. If we start raising taxes now, it will slow the economy down. There's no point in pumping money into the economy while sucking it out at the same time. There's another factor, if I can go on. Let me me hit that point real quick. This is something we talked about uh, in 2018 and 2019. Pre-pandemic, we were 
mildly to, at some points, more than mildly concerned in that the Republican Party cut taxes. Well, that wasn't the concerning part. At the same time, they raised taxes. This was the concerning part. They went from high corporate taxes and uh, high personal income tax brackets to tariffs. Now, the overall net was a cut in taxes, but it was focused on companies that maybe had an overall net, individual companies had an overall net of much more taxes if they were in import-export. So this is the, the expressed statement of we need to get our balance of trade back in order and so on. That doesn't work with tariffs. Tariffs are taxes. When you apply taxes to something, it doesn't make it more efficient. And when we're talking about a recession, what we said back then was this is a great time to experiment with tariffs because our economy is doing so well. I just hope that people remember when the economy is not doing well to remove the tariffs because those tariffs are extra taxes. And uh, that's a hard thing for people to grasp, but that's the tax revenue that the United States government earned all uh, 100% or near 100% of its tax revenue before the income tax through tariffs. Uh, so that's, that's a kind of core information that I wanted to have included in this, is that when you're raising taxes and lowering taxes at the same time, you have to look at the net of that. And the net per company would be nice. We're, we've just did a big stimulus, bad time to raise taxes. Anyway, back to you. I think you mentioned this a little earlier, but the total household net worth, that's the assets minus the liabilities in the United States has just bumped up over $130 trillion. Yeah. I mentioned it off the air though. So nobody else has heard about it. It's $130 trillion is the net worth of the households. This is not the corporations. This is not companies. This is households in the United States. And this is the key part. And when people say, what do you mean? Are you talking about corporations and so on? Big question for you. Who owns the companies? That's the point. That's the and point. There's a big bifurcation in this in this recovery that's been going on so far. That it, One of the reasons that the recent stimulus bill was shaped the way it was, and the one before that too, is to address that. And that is... If you're listening to this radio program, odds are you are in the group of people whose net worth went up dramatically this year because you own stocks. Houses are going up in value, so that's part of your net worth. Uh, if you own your house, stocks are going up in value. Uh, basically, if you're part of the ownership side of the economy, you have seen tremendous gains this year, and you probably have a higher net worth and a high, and your well-being financially is better than it's been in a long, long time. On the other side of the economy is the renter side of the economy, the people who rent their houses, the people who uh, have a lot of debt, the people who had hourly wages. In many cases, they had low-skilled hourly wages. Their net worth has been declining, and it's in their, uh, the half of the economy that's in deep pain. The problem with that, other than if you have a moral problem with it, you have a moral problem with it, but the economic problem with that is those of us who are in the higher side of this economy, the perks of the people whose net worth has been going up, have a tendency to sock away money. We have a tendency to put it in the bank or put it in the stock market or something and not spend it, which doesn't in the long term help the economy a great deal. The people in the lower half of the economy tend to spend the money they get almost immediately. When they spend that money, then it's when jobs are created and more and a growth in the economy is created. And that's what we theoretically miss coming out of the 2008-2009 recession is given the urge to spend because they had jobs and they felt secure and they felt like they had a good future in front of them to people on the lower end of the economy. Now, I will say in the last four years, they have done better than they've ever done before. And I want to point out that that was under President uh, Trump and that was under the Republican, mainly the Republican governed side of the business of the Congress. We need to continue that. We need to continue giving reason for people to be optimistic. And by the way, the Consumer Confidence Index went up dramatically this month, this last month. And it went up principally because they anticipate getting more money to spend. They, they don't think they'll lose their jobs. And if they don't have a job, they anticipate later on in the year getting their job back. That's a big plus. And that means they'll tend to spend money, which will t give the economy a kick in the air. And again, this is an experiment. It's an economics experiment to see how well it works. And keep your eye on this. Watch it. If we come out of this thing and we go like gangbusters, 
and tax revenues start kicking up, eventually, this is a warning for those of you who are listening to this radio program and have the more money, eventually taxes are going to have to be raised to pay for it. Yeah. But hopefully, hopefully Congress and the president will be wise enough to wait until the economy is roaring full tilt and then raise taxes. And, and we have some firm confidence to believe that they will do that. And the firm confidence is who they select, who the president selected as secretary of treasury. Janet Yellen is extremely aware that you don't raise taxes in a recession. Uh, she's also, and this is, this is going to throw a lot of people out there for a bit of a loop. I know it's weird because we have a Democrat as president who's nominated her. So most people just assume she must be a Democrat. I don't know what her political affiliation is. What I do know is, is the tremendous amount of research that she has put out publicly through academic work on what to do in recessions and what not to do in recessions. And she's been clear throughout her career that the long-term need of the government is to pay back down on the debt so that it's growing slower than the population, not just growing slower than the GDP, but growing slower than the population. And that's a key factor there because the the Green New Deal and uh, this whole modern monetary theory, which I've now finished the book on, leaves out a very important factor. And that's in order for us to have more debt forever into the future, we have to have a lot more kids than we're having. We're having a slightly shrinking population, having looking back at the last century and saying, hey, look, we had more debt during that entire time period and it didn't cause problems. It's because we had more kids than we had grownups. We're having the reverse of that now, which means we're passing a concentrated debt down to a smaller population. That's a problem. Why am I bringing this up when we're talking about Janet Yellen? Because Janet Yellen does not believe in modern, modern monetary theory. She looks at it as a joke, as does every, well, I would say every, uh, but I should say almost every respectable economist out there. There are some respectable economists that, for some reason, think that this is a great idea. Not very many. So the idea here, Janet Yellen's likely not to raise taxes in the recession. You probably ought to explain what modern monetary theory is. It's a theory held by uh, in the extreme left in the political party, which should tell you anytime you, you identify an economic theory with anything political, it doesn't matter if it's extreme left, extreme right, it's probably wrong because it's being put together for the wrong reason. Uh, economic theory should be put, up, put together because it works, not because it feeds to a constituent's need for something. Modern monetary theory is the concept that we can we can continue to spend at an extremely high rate for things like uh, in, well, basically anything at the governmental level, and we can just always borrow more money. And in the event that we've borrowed, uh, that, that we're needing to borrow more money or we're having trouble paying the debt, we just devalue the currency. And that's the ultimate statement in the most highly prestigiously written book on the subject uh, the book, by the way, is called The Deficit Myth, and it's written by a professor of economics at Stanford. So it's, it's a, it's a well-respected economist that wrote it, and she believes the theory, but she did not write this book in an academic setting to actually defend the premise. She, it's very political. The book is a political book. Uh, when I got all the way through it, the, the pieces that are missing here is, well, one, devaluing the currency is not good for the economy that's devaluing the currency. And two, if you have a shrinking population, it doesn't work very well. Just look at Greece. Um, if you have a shrinking population, that's not good at saving, I should say. So Japan has a massive debt load. They have a shrinking population. Why is it that their economy is not collapsing? Because there are governments not spending money on things that go away. That debt is based on carrying debt from bad business transactions and the banking system going back to the 1980s. Anyway, I, I am now, my feet are very clean. My soapbox has been cleaning them as I stood on it. I feel like I need to hand back to you at this point. Well, I mentioned that we're kind of stuck. Uh, we had the, the, the four-week moving average of layoffs in the United States is about 759,000. 
And we really seem to be stuck there. And hopefully this infusion of money into the system and vaccines, vaccines are very important. The fact that we're, we've got, uh, we've got a hundred million vaccinations now done, not, not people vaccinated because it takes two. So it's only about 50 million people vaccinated, but we're moving in the right direction. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the jobs start to pick up and the layoffs start to fall off and the economists are agreeing with that. Um, we talked about inflation for just a moment, but it's worth discussing. Why would we not have inflation if we're flushing all this money into the economy? Well, first, let's say why we would have inflation. Not because of a shortage of supply. Supply is there. It's a shortage in the logistics chain. It's costing more and more money to get things from one place to another for a whole host of reasons. One of the principal, but the principal reason it's costing more money to get things from one place to another is because of COVID. There are drivers sick. There are uh, port workers that are sick. And when that happens, you have a tendency to get fewer. It costs more money. It takes the greater delays in getting things from one place to another. That's also a reason that we need to upgrade our infrastructure. And I don't know how that's going to come through Congress. But I hope we get an infrastructure upgrade. There's a case, Jake, where investment will be over the long term because it will take more than two years for the investment in the infrastructure to show up in the economy. It, you know, it took a long time to build the interstate system. It took a long time to upgrade it. It's going to take a long time to upgrade our ports. We've got a lot of upgrading that we need to do if we're going to have our economy continue to grow. And that means uh, that we're going to have to have representatives in Congress, specifically in the House, that are willing to make a painful decision of one taking on more debt today for an investment that's not generally going to pay off except over a 30 to 40 year period. And what's more, they don't even get to go and snip ribbons for the cameras because the, they don't break ground on these things until all the money's lined up and they've got the people all set up to do it. They've got to hire the organizations to do it. They got to make sure they're competent to do the work. Doing bridges is not a simple matter. Doing dams is not a simple matter, which means they've got to, they're going to have to make a decision that will not benefit them in the election cycle that's on the horizon. That's a hard thing for people in Congress to do. I hope they do it. I really do hope they do it. Man, I hope they do it. But, I'm not seeing it right now. I hear people whispering about it, but it, it's important. We really need this investment in the system. Hopefully we can get out of the partisan nature of dueling each other over your idea is bad because you said it instead of me. If I had said it first, it would have been good. And that's, you know, you mentioned that just a minute ago that the two stimulus packages passed by Republican Congresses and Republican president were signed with no problem, you come forward and the next stimulus package has not a single Republican vote on it because the Republicans aren't in charge anymore. Uh, and we have the same thing when it takes place, the, the different switch from the Democrats. It's not like I'm pointing only at the Republicans. Right now, we got to get to a point where we can have a conversation in our own house without just saying, you're wrong, I'm right constantly and let's find the right approach together i i know i've been screaming about that to an empty room for the last decade but i'm going to keep screaming <laughs> come on guys let's work together we're all in it together uh, well i wanted to talk about uh some stuff on the oil patch we we talk about this regularly uh, but the price of oil you talked about this at the beginning of the first owl our uh, West Texas Intermediate uh, is trading right around 65 or $66 a barrel. That is significantly higher than the negative $37 a barrel it was in the, in the horrors of April of last year. And it is one of the reasons people are scared about inflation, because the, if, you, if you took the consumer price indexes, which was released this last week, it went up 1.7% year over year which is still below the Fed's guidelines, but it's a big jump from where we were. Uh, the problem with that is if you pull out the price of fuel out of that, it drops down to about 1.3%, which is still way below what the Fed wants to see. Yeah. Why is the price of why is the price of fuel gone up so much? Well, very frankly, the economy is recovering and a lot of people are starting to burn fuel again. Yeah, yeah. So let that, that negative 
$37 a barrel. And I still have people that missed that period of time. It was about a month and I, I, re, arguably it was easy to miss because normally it wouldn't have been, but we're right in the middle of our first lockdown. People are staring at the wall in their room trying to figure out if it looks the same as it did yesterday. Uh, but we went down to negative dollars per barrel, negative 30, it cost money to own oil because we ran out of storage space because we were producing too much and we weren't using it. So to come forward to maybe $100 a barrel more expensive than it was when it cost money to own it. Uh, on top of that, the rig count is up. And it's just fun to talk about rig count. It sounds like you really know what you're talking about. You're just talking about the rig count over here. Um, the reality is that the rig count Active rigs in use. This is something that Baker Hughes puts out on a regular basis. It's up 80% from where it was uh, in August. So it's not even been a year. Uh, 80%. So we went from a low count of 172 rigs in operation. Those are major rigs. They're not the little little wells. These are the big rigs that are, are counted on major production we're up to 310. So it's nearly double what it was at the, at the bottom. So all of this is saying that we've got a boom ahead or that oil wouldn't be going for the price that it is and we wouldn't be selling it at the way we are. It's needed. People are buying it. If you'd like to join the conversation, we are reading our emails, uh, jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Uh, and if you send something in, we'll try to get to it this hour. Uh, otherwise, it'll have to be next week. So we're going to break from commercials from these extremely important sponsors. And we'll be back on the other side with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back. With more of the personal wealth coach with Jake McClure and Jeff McClure. Uh, we are here to fill your brain with drivel or at least dismal science stuff. Uh, a lot of this stuff does not impact your day to day life, I would guess. But hopefully, what we're talking about can impact your long term success. Uh, when we see oil prices going up, when we see uh, demand going up for things across the board when we see our vaccination rate going up the way it is. These are all extremely good signs for the economy. We've talked about for months, we're coming in, we can see the light at the end of the table, uh, it's a table, at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and we are now at a point where we're ramping up to leave the tunnel. We're still in it. Don't go running around breathing on each other yet. Get your vaccination going. Wear your mask, even if you're vaccinated, just because it, you got to prove that you, you've got vaccination. Otherwise, it's just better to let everybody feel comfortable. And we'll be back in business. And uh, we're, I saw my first in-office clients this week. Uh, I'm not going to make a habit of that, but it was a weird sensation. It's been a year since I've been face to face with someone. Now, arguably we had our masks on the whole time. So it's not really face. It's a cloth to cloth with someone rather than face to face, but at least we were physically present. And that's a, it's a big deal. It means that we're coming through this. We're coming out of it. I don't think anybody expected a year later for us to still be saying, are we going to go back to work? But, here we are and we've made it this far. This is, this is, I got to give everybody a, 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 I don't know, round of applause, a kudo, everybody that's listening, you did it. We're, we're not quite through this yet, but look back at how far we've come at that initial feeling of shock that we all had coming into this, that initial feeling of, whoa, how long, this isn't going to last very long to we've, been through some pretty significant sacrifices together. Whether you agreed with the masks or not, whether you 
we're one end or the other. All of us have been in this getting to where we are together. Good job. There. Now, I'm going to hand it back to you for a little bit. Well, there's a couple of things to be aware of. Uh, there's actually more than a few things to be aware of, but like we've been saying over and over again, things are going to get a lot better. I'm confident. And I don't often talk about the future this way, but I can tell you that I'm confident we're going to see a much better economy and a much better, more healthy economy in the near future, the next few months. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, there's some craziness going on. For one thing, and I mentioned this too, that we still have a lot of people unemployed. Somewhere between 10 and 20 million people who used to be employed aren't employed anymore. 10 million, if you measure, that's actually 9.5 million if you take the official numbers. But there's another 10 million people who were working before who aren't working now and have either given up looking for a job or can't look for a job for some reason. And that's a problem. Uh, We have a tremendous mismatch right now between people's skills and the jobs that we need for the economy. We've got some improvements that we need to be made there, so it's going to take a while. The best estimates that I've seen so far is it will take three years for us to recover to full employment. It'll just be a while before we spin up to that level. So it's not something that's going to happen real quickly. It's going to take a lot of investment. The other thing that to be aware of, to be fully aware of as this recovery takes place, is that there's a lot of froth out there, which is in normal circumstances would have me scared that we're looking at a market crash, although I don't see one on the horizon at this point. The froth I'm referring to are things like SPACs. And if you don't know what a SPAC is, congratulations. Yeah, it's probably safer not to know. Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Basically, it does an IPO, lists on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ or something. It says, here we are, we have a symbol, but we don't invest in anything yet. We'll figure out something to invest in, give us a bunch of money. Those things are doing like going like crazy there. We've had record numbers of these things created. Interestingly enough, they are in a technically in a bear market right now. They're, the SPAC index is down 20%, which indicates that their comeuppance is probably here, but that doesn't mean people are stopping investing in them. There's still people are still buying SPACs. What happens is a SPAC occurs. And then it merges with a company who doesn't want to do a regular IPO, an investment uh, initial public offering. Why don't they want to do an IPO? Well, first off, it's expensive. But the other side of it is they don't want people looking in their books too hard. They can just merge with an existing SPAC company and nobody has to look in the books. It doesn't have to be published. You don't know what you're getting into. These are relatively dangerous things, as are cryptocurrencies, as are speculative. When you look, for instance, at GameStop, we've talked about GameStop. It has a negative earnings, a big negative earnings each year. It's losing money hand over fist. No matter what they do, it's unlikely to turn around. But the price keeps going up and down. It's been as high as $450, $470 a share, and down to $40 a share. And now it's come back up to around $100 a share, $100 to $200 a share recently. These are very, very dangerous places to go, and they're nothing more. They're speculation, but they're basically. It's $265 a share at this point. But it was down at 40. Yeah. And we had a massive spike in January and into the very beginning of February where it went up to nearly 400 and then dropped immediately. And then we have another massive spike where it's dropped up to 260-ish, $265. We expect it to crash again. And the people that lost money in that first crash are not the ones that are back in it this time around. But when you have a spike that goes from $7 a share to $400 a share to $40 a share to $265 a share, this may not be the, for the faint of heart. And it's all in a company that's losing money and or fist. Yeah. And real plan for changing that. The price to earnings ratio is a negative nearly 14, which it would... You, you would have to go back 14 years to make a profit on this price. <laughs> you can't do that. You can't go backwards in time. And they just simply don't have a plan to make more money. They've got a new CEO, congratulations. And that's wonderful, but they don't have a plan out there to make more money. It reminds me a lot of the late 1990s. Yeah. So was, this, this is the spread. This is, we were talking about up to this and down to that. The 52-week low and high 52 week is a year 
the low was $2.57. The high was $483. That is quite a swing. It is way across the spectrum. And like you said, it's like the late 90s. It's like the dot-com boom. We are advocates of a broadly diversified portfolio of long-term investments. Yeah. And by long-term investments, that means you tend to stick with you. Whatever you're buying today is something that you want to own for the next 10 years, at least. You want to be broadly diversified. You want to be across different asset classes. And you want to buy things preferably that are that the stock price is less expensive than if you, if you had all the stock and you add it together that belongs to the company. You look at the value of that stock, and then you look at the value of the company itself if it were sold on the open market. If the stock price is at or lower than the value of the company, it's generally a pretty good idea to buy. And we don't recommend buying individual stocks because we say broadly diversified is critical. Unless you have billions of dollars buying individual stocks, you're not going to be broadly diversified. And and so when we say this, we know that there are a lot of people that have made a lot of money on individual stocks. The, the issue at stake here is that if you're in one company, no matter how good, if it's Apple, if it's Microsoft, these are companies that have been, I mean, I've got a Microsoft computer. I'm running a Microsoft operating system. I have a Microsoft keyboard. I obviously like their products. I use Office 365. I would not concentrate my wealth in Microsoft because all it takes is a series of relatively low-level bad decisions and the company goes away. Same with Apple, same with any individual company. Now, there are a lot of people that have made a lot of money on it, but the long-term planning prospect of maintaining wealth is that you get less concentrated in one thing that could have a hiccup beyond your control, and you get spread across economies that have to do with what you're trying to accomplish. That's what we mean when we talk about diversification. Don't get so concentrated in, even on these big ones. And early on in an investment career, when somebody's saying, I'm going to buy this stock, well, those are generally not the people we give advice to. And it's generally those people, once they've acquired wealth and they say, I don't want to have it all in one stock because it all could go away as fast as I got it. Then we start developing really diversified portfolios and holding them for long, long periods of time. And we're about out of time for this hour, for this week. We are. Do you have a quick wrap up? Well, I'd say that the economy is continuing to improve. It's charging along. It's becoming, the market's actually becoming more healthy rather than less healthy as the value stocks pick up and the growth stocks trail off, which is an unusual circumstance without a bear market. Interest rates are likely to rise this year, but they won't stay up forever. And we're about out of time. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to talk to us off the air Uh, We have emails immediately, jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com. You can call us locally at... 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that same line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 1-800-914-PLAN. On our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can sign up for newsletters. You can uh, get our recordings of radio programs going back lots of years. You can find us on just about any podcast service. If you're looking out there, we have that out there. Until next week, this has been the, Th- the Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening.